0: I think it's fair to say that it is not too very hard to become discouraged in these times as a Christian trying to be faithful, again, in these faithless times. You think about it. Um, Well, the government, and I think society at large, promotes severe ungodliness. The kind of ungodliness that makes the uh, sexual revolution of the 1960s seem like uh, prudish, right? Uh, The kind of ungodliness that Sodom and Gomorrah would probably blush over, that's kind of the times we live in, right? We live in times when, I want to say this graciously, but clearly, a lot of churches have compromised the faith departing historic, biblically wrought positions in favor of not offending anyone, right? And then there are other churches that kind of just straddle the fence and and don't want to climb up on the watchtower and, and herald the truth, as we're called to do. And then there's no shortages of scandals in the church, right? Scandal after scandal, it seems, erupts, only providing ammunition, fuel, and fodder for those who would like to deny the Christian faith. And you add to that a hearty dose of cultural Christians, which is what I was before I really came to understand the gospel. I would have considered myself a Christian. I was not in any biblical way. Hearty dose of that, both on the right right, and on the left, on the left and on the right, who, who don't really understand the gospel And do not pursue a biblical Jesus, only adding to the cauldron of confusion. I think it is easy to be discouraged as a Christian trying to be faithful in faithless times. I don't know about you, but I think it can be challenging. And as a result, we can be tempted to just throw in the towel. What's the use? Everybody else is accommodating lies. I don't want to be ostracized, so... There's a temptation to compromise. And if we're not tempted to compromise, I think we can be tempted to become bitter and cynical and perhaps even unloving, caustic, right? And just sort of button down the hatches and ride it out until the Lord returns, until we die, whichever comes first. Instead of being Bold, vibrant, joyful witnesses. You know, light, Jesus says, and salt. In other words, we can easily become obsessive about all that is wrong instead of confidently proclaiming him who can make all things right. So, I had no idea, and I'm, I'm being truthful here, that when I stepped out of Matthew to go to the Gospel of Jude content series, right, Coming back to this, Matthew 13, today's passage, how much these two, the book of Judah and this parable, these, specifically the first parable, would intersect together in calling us to be faithful in faithless times. So I promise you I'm not riding a hobby horse, okay? I'm just riding the text. And I believe Restore Church God is speaking to us in this hour about holding fast and doing so with joy. Just as Jude 24 and 25 was a call to be encouraged in the midst of contending for the faith, I believe this passage is a shot in the arm to us. A shot in the arm, and here's the title that says, Yes, fakes exist, and they do, but the kingdom still advances. Fakes exist, but the kingdom still advances. Now, before we begin to work through this text, let me give you the structure. I think this will be helpful. What I just read is a bit of a sandwich. Not an open-faced sandwich, but a sandwich. What does every sandwich have? How many pieces? Two pieces of bread, and then what do you have between the bread? Meat and cheese, yeah, good one. Roast beef, right? None of this vegan meat, that's a lie from the pit, all right? Mm-hmm. Actually, I did go to a vegetarian restaurant, and it was very good, but I digress, okay? All right, I digress. Um, no, so what you have, the bread is this. The, the top bread would be verses 24 through 30, uh, and it's the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, right, or the wheat and the weed, and basically in that parable Jesus is just expounding the parable he's 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 giving them the parable so that's the top piece of bread and then if you go to the bottom of the passage the bottom piece of bread drop down to verses 36 through 43 there it's not the parable expounded it's the parable explained okay he he describes what's going on there in the parable of the wheat and tear. so you with me right there and in that par in this parable what we're going to learn is fakes exist There's wheat and there's tares, okay? Fakes exist. You all with me? Then the meat is this. This is the more encouraging parables. The parable the mustard seed and the leaven, that's verses 31 through 33. That's the meat. And what we're going to learn from those parables is, yes, fakes exist, exist, the bread, the meat, but the kingdom still continues. Does that make sense? And then what do you have on every bread? What, What do you have on every sandwich as well, typically, if it's a meat and cheese sandwich? you don't want it dry. You got to have some condiments, right? Some, uh, you haven't have any grape coupon? You know, some mustard like that, okay? People like, I have no idea what that guy's <laughs> talking about. So there is a little grape coupon. There is some mustard, and that's in verses 34 through 35, where Jesus is basically saying, hey, listen, me teaching in parables now, I'm only fulfilling what the prophet Asaph said by the way, Jesus is saying, I am the one that the Old Testament pointed towards. What, is, what I'm teaching you and how I'm teaching you is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So that's the structure. A sandwich. And this sandwich is going to have some, some chilling encounters for us, frankly but also some very heartwarming encounters as well. So let's begin with the bread, or the fakes exist, verses 24 through 30, where he simply gives the parable. In the parable the wheat and tares, Jesus um, is referring to a practice not unheard of in the ancient world. Basically, after a farmer would sow his field with good seed, an enemy farmer would sabotage by at night when everyone was asleep, have some of his people put bad seed, the, the Greek word is overseed, with some bad seed, that same field. Apparently it is, was common enough for there actually to be a, a law on the Roman books of law against this such thing. There was a severe penalty for doing that. So that's what happens in the parable, right? The servants come and they ask the master, whoa, 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 I thought you sowed good seed on your field. And yet they say, verse 30, verse 27, how then does it have weeds? They're asking the master, what happened? Because I thought you sowed good seed. What does the master say? An enemy did it. Remember the whole sabotage thing. An enemy came in and scattered some bad seed over the good seed. So what do they say? Ah, we want to be good servants. Do you want us to pluck those plants up? You know, the weeds, not the wheat, but the weeds. And what does the master say? What does he say? Nope. Look at verse 29. He said, no lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Now, a little bit of context here. Most commentators say that the bad seed or the weeds was something called uh, bearded darnel. And the thing about bearded darnel is in certain stages of its growth, the younger growth, it, it was almost uh, indistinguishable from the wheat. So you get where he's going with this? The wheat and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares, they almost look alike. For That was one reason he says, don't pluck them up. Remember my mom wanted me one time to weed the garden, and I weed it more than the weeds, okay? I couldn't <laughs> distinguish between the two, duh. So he's saying, don't do that now. And the other thing is, he says, even if you can distinguish between the two, they're... they're uh, Um, Roots get so intertwined that if you yank up one, you're gonna pull up the other. So this is what he says. Verse 30, let them both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In other words, the time's coming. Wheat, barn, weeds, burn pile. Pretty easy to follow parable, right? But of course, Jesus is talking about more than did weeds, right? And wheat and ancient practices. He's, he's trying to communicate spiritual truth with everyday stories, parables. Now, for some people, parables are, Nick, is it green needle? And what was the other one? Brainstorming. You have no idea what I'm talking about, much like the grape Poupon thing? you can go back and listen to last week's message, okay? So parables have this, have this kind of dual purpose, both to conceal truth, right, to people who are interested in truth, but also to reveal truth for people who are interested in truth. Well, looking at this narrative, the people to whom the parables reveal truth ask sincere questions. And that's exactly what the disciples do in verse 36, the bottom piece of bread. Then he left the crowds, Jesus, and he went into the house, and his his disciples came to, to him saying, explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. Now, these men are called disciples, disciples. Do you know what disciple means? A follower and a learner true disciples are followers and learners they keep on following and keep on learning about jesus a lot of people pray to prayer it's like they high five the lord but then they went on with the same life that is not conversion conversion you turn his direction believing he paid for your price on the the price of your sin on the cross and he, and he rose again on the third day to prove it right And you then follow him. These are true disciples. So after he's done telling the masses this parable, they say, hey, can you give us the inside scoop? What is this about? And Jesus then will proceed to tell them about five entities, the identity, if you will, of five entities in this parable. Let's let's look at these five entities. He says... Beginning with verse 37, it says, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, who's the son of man? Jesus. Sometimes people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Can you just put away that nonsense? He's quoting from Daniel chapter 7, son of man. And in Daniel chapter 7, I think it's verses 13 and 14, there's the Ancient of Days, and one comes to him called the Son of Man or a Son of Man, and there's given to the Son of Man dominion and glory and power and everlasting kingdom. Anybody here been given an everlasting kingdom? Only an everlasting God can receive an everlasting kingdom. So this is Jesus referring to his deity. He is the sower of good seed. That's entity one. Entity two, we ask ourselves then, what is the... What, 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 what's the sphere or the scope of where this sowing is taking place? Verse 38, what's the answer? The field is the world. Now, that's important because some people say, hey, 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 you ever read the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares? That's why we shouldn't do church discipline. Because Jesus said, I'll sort things out at the end of the age. And a lady tell me that. Now, we should walk through such things very carefully as we do here, but it is biblical, by the way. What's the problem with that interpretation? He doesn't say the field is the church. He says the field is the, the world. It's pretty clear, right? You don't need no Greek for that. It is the world. So the good, seed, the, the good sower is Jesus. The field where the seed is sown is the world. Now we get to the good seed of the kingdom. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now, who is that? Who are the sons of the kingdom? Christians, right? You, brothers and sisters, are sons of the kingdom. These are true Christians, bona fide Christians. People have really seen their sin for what it is, and they turn to Jesus, the only Savior, and they're following him. They're disciples, they're learners. Jesus is the one that plants Christians, right? Jesus is the one that grows Christians, right? Jesus is the one that deploys Christians. This is what Jesus does. He is the one that sends us. That gets gets us to entity four. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And that's where a little bit, honestly, of the debate begins about the meaning of this parable. And I was sharing this with the other elders as I was grinding through the text this week. There are some people who say, when it says sons of the evil one, it simply means lost people in general. And the thinking goes like this. Does it not say in Ephesians chapter 2 that before we came to Christ, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan. So basically what it's saying is these are just lost people in general. Now, well, it's true that before we got saved, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air as all humans do outside of Christ. I don't actually think that's what he means specifically by sons of the evil one. Here's why. I lean, let me tell you what, what I think it means and then, and then why. This is where I lean. I'm not gonna be super dogmatic, but I'm gonna preach it this way because I think that's what's going on. I don't think he means lost people generically, yes, who do walk according to the prince of the power of the air, I think he means specifically quasi-Christians, that means fake or false. I think he means pseudo-Christians, fake Christians. He's saying they exist and there's gonna be a lot of them. Now, let me tell you why. Well, the fact is, people are already lost, they're born lost, right? Since the fall, we're born lost. We're born spiritually dead, but physically alive. We need a new birth. So we don't need any further sowing by the devil to become lost, right? We're already lost. Does that make sense? The second thing, when you get to one of the points of the parables, is wheat and tares look kind of similar at a certain stage from a certain vantage point if you don't have the eyes to see them, right? That's kind of the point of the parable. Christians, fake Christians. And then, here was the decider for me. Hold your place there and turn to Matthew chapter 23. Comparing Scripture with Scripture. This would be the woes. We'll get to that next year. The seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to pick up on a specific woe that's given in verse 15. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, is Jesus' words by the way. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or follower. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him, now look at these words, twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Do you see that? I think he's talking about a fake convert. These Pharisees the skewered ones didn't see people truly come to Judaism and trust the one the system pointed towards. Rather, they made their followers twice the child of the devil that they were, twice the sons of hell that they were. Quasi-Christians. So I, that's the way I'm taking this, okay? So what is the identity of the bad seed? Say it? Quasi-Christians, fake Christians, counterfeit Christians, yes. Finally, fifth of all, not for the sermon, but for these identities, okay? Enemy sower is the devil. You can see that. And the enemy, verse 39, who sowed them is the devil. Now, we want to ask the question then, how does the enemy sow fake Christians? That's a good question, right? If if he's saying the enemy does that, and I think that's what he's saying, then how does he do that? How does he do that? Well, do we not know from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, let me read this. He talks about, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising, disguising themselves as angels of light, and no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises as an angel of light. So it is no res- surprise, he goes on to say, if his servants, that Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Just as the Pharisees, of whom Jesus said in John eight forty four, you are of your father the devil, distorted Judaism, did they not? Causing people or helping cause people to miss the very one the whole Jewish system pointed to, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. Well, in the same way, Satan energizes false teachers and false movements that distort, twist the person and work of Jesus Christ to create quasi-converts. Now, here's here's some of the tactics they use. They use all the right terminology, but they suck out the true meaning and replace it with heretical meaning. Because people say, well, they, they talk about Jesus the Savior and they talk about grace, so they use the same words, but they make them into different containers. Does that make sense? That's how they do it. They often will say stuff like, they alone have the missing truth. They often assert that they alone have the right interpretation, because the truth of God is not bound to a single denomination. You understand that. There's the primary truths, and then there's secondary. Primary, salvation rides on secondary, we might differ on, but our salvation doesn't ride on them. No, no, they say they uniquely have primary truth. That's what they assert. They depart from historic positions, and they also abuse the concept of compassion in order to garner and gain a hearing. And often their leaders claim that they have a special line to God that you and I don't have. Now, I want to give you a few examples of it because without examples, it just kind of remains amorphous and ambiguous. So, pseudo-Christian religions. Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They do not believe Jesus is God. They'll talk out of both sides of their mouth. They even did the watchtower translation, which tries to take the deity of Jesus, the, the Godhood of Jesus out of that translation. But it's so woven in, even you can even prove Jesus God from their twisted. Because people bow down on worship, and only God is to be worshipped. Then you have Mormonism. Mormonism says that we can become a God just like Jesus was once merely a man, and he became a God, and now he has his own universe, and you can have your own universe with all your wives and this and that. But they use a lot of the same terminology, right? Or how about this? Seventh-day Adventist who actually believe that what we're doing shows that we're under the curse of God because we are Sabbath breakers meeting on the first day of the week. They, they, they're trusting in the law, the old covenant law. And then you have this. You have something called Roman Catholicism, a lot closer to truth than those other ones, but believe that, for instance, Mary and Jesus are co-redemptri- co-redemptrix. In other words, they, they do this salvation thing together. They believe that the Pope... Pope speaks, when he speaks ex-cathedra, which means in his chair or out of his chair, that he speaks infallibly, that he has this line to God that no one else does. And I'm sorry, that's just not biblical. It's just not. You have progressive Christianity, which is something kind of old but coming back repackaged, which they take the same terms, but they put different meanings in them. And I, just one other example I came across this morning. So uh, a person I, be- I befriended some, some time ago, um, he is, uh, I can find this, I have it. He is um, a minister in a certain Lutheran denomination, and he happens to be married to somebody else who's a minister in that same organization who is himself also a man. So that tells you where the denomination is on that. And he wrote, happy birthday to my beloved husband, and I won't give you his name. I'm incredibly blessed to call you my husband, my friend, my companion, my partner. I'm so glad we get to share a vacation, a home, and so much else together. You are a leader, a preacher, a scholar, a wise counselor, a friend, and a confidant. My life is so much richer because you're in it, and I know that it is true for countless others the world over. Here's to many more, heart, heart, heart. Now, he's actually a really nice guy, this guy, Okay? He really is. I mean, you talk to him, nice guy, but obviously involved in something that God calls an abomination. That is a twisting of God's plan. Now, here's the thing. Here's the point I'm trying to make with all this. Before I truly became a Christian, I would have thought, well, all of these people are Christians. I mean, especially that guy. He's a minister. He knows better than I do. I'm no minister. I couldn't even find third Hezekiah in the Bible at the time, you know? I would have thought such people and more all Christians. I would, maybe I would have said that they're religious, right? Maybe I would have said that they're they're uh, devout, right? Maybe I would have said they pray a lot or they, ho- they have this holy book and all that. But Jesus says the weeds are the sons of the evil one, false converts who false teachers and false movements help create. Now, you get on to verse 39 through 42. He says there's a coming harvest of judgment by angels in which people will be, these are Jesus' words, thrown into hell. Look at verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing Now, some people, and I think Pastor Clay, as he comes back to the parable of the dragnet in two weeks, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about hell and what that means doctrinally and practically in everyday life. But there are some people who want to deny or diminish the existence of hell. Now, hell is a horrible place, right? But to deny it or to diminish it is to say that Jesus is a liar, you read those words, so I would recommend anyone here that you just go with Jesus, okay? Just go with what Jesus has to say, because Jesus is not a liar. What's interesting there's a phrase in ver- and I'll leave that for now, but verse forty one there is a phrase that um, that gives the true character of all these people, however they might look religiously this 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 phrase reveals their true character he says The son of man will send his angels, verse 41, and they will gather out of his kingdom all what? Causes of sin and all lawbreakers, or or literally everything that causes sin or everyone that causes sin and all lawbreakers. See, can bona fide Christians pretty much commit any sin? Yes, right? David uh, and and, and Peter, many, many others. But such people are marked by sin. Even if it is masked, right, by religion. Religion is nothing more than putting lipstick and a ribbon on a pig. You still got a pig, right? That's kind of a funny image, by the way. I, I imagine my dog Lucy with lipstick on. She would still look like Lucy. Big, rotund, dog, beautiful dog. You know, but it's just the truth, and, and, and religion isn't just that. Religion is like putting a suit on a cadaver. You're still dead in your transgressions and, transgressions and sins. More than that, religion is actually trying to put a happy face on an enemy of God, because the Bible says that our sin, our lawbreaking, is an expression of our enmity towards God. But this description of verse 41b, I want to read it again all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers should actually make all of us here flinch. It really should. Well, unless you've never broken God's law. Anybody here like that? Anybody here like that? Anybody? Not a one. Not a one. No. In light of James 2.10, a verse that Joe referenced in Sunday school, whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends, in how many points? One is guilty of all. So really, this should make all of us flinch, right? This should make all of us say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Now, there's a truth this parable doesn't tell, but the rest of the Bible does. And that is this. God is in the business of turning weeds into wheat. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? That's Ezekiel 37 right there. When he takes away a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, regeneration, causing us to see our sin for what it nasty is and run to the Savior for what he gloriously is for salvation. And and, and I could just give you story after story after story after story. And for sake of time, I'm just going to give you one. Second church we were at as a family. It was in Greenville, South Carolina. And there was a, a, a sweet older lady there who had been a nun. She was very devout none. Um, but along the way of just interacting with the Bible herself, she came to see, whoa, 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 I can't earn grace. For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. That all our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6, is nothing but filthy rags. And the enemy would love to think that I can work my way to God out of pride. I am a sinner who needs a savior. And so she, in that, in that Catholic convent, came to faith in Christ but she stayed there for a while trying to sort things out and figure things out. But one of the things that would happen, I think uh, one of the local cardinals or whatever would come, I don't know, every year or every month, I'm not sure what it was, was, to the convent and all the nuns would, would, would bow down and kiss his ring and she said, I can't do that, that would be against God. So she would go hide in the closet before she finally left the convent. There's tons and tons of stories like that, right? People who come out of false dead works religion to the religion of grace or the truth of Christ. Now, verse 43, and I gotta really hurry now, um, says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. How are we righteous? Righteous by what? The justification of Christ, right? He gives us his righteousness, but also righteous by transformation, right? He saves us, and then maybe he begins a lifelong process of changing. It ups and flows, it's up and down, but he is changing. And he ends this part by saying, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? Do you understand? That, you, that no religion can save you apart from the truth of Jesus Christ. And he saves whoever will come to him. Now, that first point is fakes exist, but now we will really sprint. Let me tie up my old cowboy boots right here. The kingdom advances. We're going to go to two parables Verse 31 reads, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Oh, let me stop here. Some people take this and they say, see, the Bible's not inspired. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed. You can, people say that. Well, context, context, context. He's talking about agricultural seed clearly. And by the way, in Palestine. And by the way, it was until the 16th century, until they imported tobacco seeds, which I guess are even smaller. So enough of that, okay? So this parable reminds us, these two parables remind us of four things about the kingdom. Number one, the kingdom starts modestly. Modestly. Am I saying that word right? Modestly. Modestly. Yep. That's how it starts. We like fanfare and massive launches and all that. That's not how Jesus launched his, his, his incarnation. You know the story. We're about to celebrate it, Christmas. He came into the world on some eye-raising eye situation, right? Hmm. He's born in, in a feeding trough. I'm sure Courtney's baby will not be put in a feeding trough this morning, okay? In a stable right? With stinky animals. In backwaters Bethlehem. And when they move in fulfillment of prophecy to Nazareth, they say, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then the 12 disciples that he chose, these were not any, they were not any part of the Jewish leadership structure. They were not men of higher social class. These were a bunch of, in the main, unlearned dudes. And then Jesus, after living 33 years of perfection, dies on a criminal's cross, right? Went to the San Quentin of the day, the execution chamber, the cross. Nailed to a cross. A few people saw the significance, right? Remember the uh, Romans and Tyrion, surely this man is the son of God. But most people just saw another person being crucified. And of course, yes, After he was buried like a seed, the ultimate mustard seed, Jesus. Hallelujah for that, right? He rose from the dead. And that changed it for so many. It changed a lot of things for a lot of people. But still, Christianity was a pretty small movement at the time. And they come together at Pentecost, 120. Some people consider that a small church. Just 120. Bam! Here we are today, right? Modest beginnings, and look at it now. Look at it now. Incredible. Boom. How about conversion itself? Man, what a great lesson this morning, Arpith and Pastor Cleet. That was awesome. Because evangelism mostly begins quite modestly. Not with crazy fanfare and crazy stories, just sustained faithfulness in all the mundane places of life. We like to give airtime to dramatic conversions as I did with the nun, but most begin in very modest, unremarkable ways. Isn't that true? A question or a comment by a friend, somebody shares a verse, somebody invites you to church, that's typically how it begins. So parents, remember that with your children. Keep on, as you admonished us this morning, encouraged us, keep on sharing the gospel again and again and again. It starts modestly. That's what we learn from this parable, the kingdom, how the kingdom advances. But second of all, it blesses globally. Look at this phrase right here. Verse 32, it is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Let me summarize here. There's some Old Testament stuff going on here. He's referencing... uh, Imagery from Daniel as well as Ezekiel in which the nation of Israel was described as a tree in which the other nations would come and find security and safety and blessing and all that under in those branches and underneath those branches. I think the point is clear. The impact of Christianity on the world at large. Now, will culture tell you that Christianity has had a good impact on the world or a bad impact? What will will the world typically tell you right now? Bad, right, and they'll throw some language on it like Christians, what, what, what kind of language will they use? Outdated, right, oppressive, right, what else? And I'll just put it kindly, we're in church, that's manure, okay? I just wanna give you a little bit, of, of real quickly, of a uh, portion of an article on the impact Christianity, Christianity has had on the world. This guy wrote, Christianity is the DNA by which world history finds its life and development. That's a pretty bold statement. He says, the architecture of society is predominantly Christian influence, whether we want to admit it or not. And he gives us 15 impacts, I'm not gonna give you them all, but first of all, this is number two for him, Christianity gave us hospitals as we know them today. Did you know that? The idea of the hospital grew out of the Christian emphasis on charity, especially toward the sick. In the days of Jesus, hospitals and physici- physical treatment were reserved strictly for slaves because they're property. You got to keep them working. Roman gladiators got to keep them fighting. Soldiers got to keep them defending. And the rich, nobody else. But it was through the compassion of Jesus' followers that the average working-class citizen started receiving help. It was decreed beginning in the fourth century that for every church built, a corresponding hospital would be built next to it. That's why we have Baptist Hospital, Presbyterian Hospital, all the rest. Number two, number three for him, Christianity gave us adoption and foster care systems. Throughout history, it's always been common for children to be thrown away, just like they are in that abortion mill in eight Mile or drowned if they're not wanted, and in some cases in ancient times, even sold for child sacrifice, to be burned on an altar. The early Christians were the first ones to get the babies from the dumpsters and adopt them, as well as the first ones to open up adoption centers for the children that were being rejected from their homes. The early Christians recognized that all people are made in God's image, children included, and deserve a chance at life. Drop down to number five. Christianity gave us a higher view of sexuality and marriage. Adultery and prostitution have always been prevalent. Men used to, and in some cases still sadly do, share their women like property. In ancient times, they often visited temple prostitutes as part of their weekly routine. But it was Jesus who revolutionized the most sacred way of viewing sex, even, he says, gazing at a woman lustfully is what? Adultery in the heart. It was Jesus' influence on sexual morality that brought dignity and honor to the marriage institution. The level of commitment for marriage is highest because, quote, what God has joined together, let no man divide asunder. Christianity, next of all, gave women greater dignity and freedom. Jesus is the chief revolutionary of women's rights. In Jesus' day, women were the property of their husbands, so much so so, that if they committed adultery, He was only punished if it was another man's wife. If the woman or the wife committed adultery, however, she was subject to capital punishment. Oh, that sounds like equality, not. Seriously, yes. He says, I fact checked this. Men were able to mistreat and abuse their wives with no legal recourse, and women were not allowed to testify in court. It was Jesus who continually befriended women as his own and included them in his ministry. He even chose two women to be the herald of his Christian, of the Christian message, Mary Magdalene, if you know the story, and Mary, the mother of James. It was scandalous, but Jesus revolutionized and elevated the status of woman. Now, wherever Christianity spreads, then so does the value, respect, and dignity of women along with it. Christianity was the most important force in abolishing slavery. Slave auctions were once practiced in the United States, and unfortunately, many slave owners called themselves Christians. But the true followers of Christ called abolitionists eventually paved their way for the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. I go on and on and on. I'll just close with this. According to the World Economic Forum, nine of the best 10 nations on earth for women's rights have majority Christian populations, a tree blessing others. Despite the fact that some universities and even a lot and perhaps most are now openly hostile to Christianity, this man discovered nearly every leading university in the world was founded by Christians. He goes on to say, "While certainly many Christians were pro-slavery prior to the Civil War. The author learned that among the most influential abolitionists, the ones who worked most tirelessly to overthrow slavery, he could not find one who was not a Christian. Listen, family, I will not go on, but I could. The church, remember in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, the, the, the believing spouse has a sanctifying influence on the unbelieving spouse? That's an analogy for the influence the church is supposed to have on the world as we are salt and light. Now, that gives us finally to the other parable, the parable of, of the leaven. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Um, this also reminds us of modest beginnings like leaven? That ain't much, Right? And Levin, by the way, is uh, typically not spoken of favorably in the the Bible, not exclusively, but not typically favorably. And let's be honest, he uh, started his kingdom, Jesus did with a motley crew of disciples, as I referenced. So it emphasizes that, but it also reminds us, third of all, that the kingdom grows imperceptibly. You can't really see it going on sometimes. Like, three measures would be about a uh, flour would be about fifty pounds of dough with leaven in it it would it would do its thing with the bread so that you could feed a hundred people okay but you're not gonna see that leaven doing this leavening thing right You could stare at that bread you could maybe put down a camera and like you know condense uh the time frame and all that, but you're not gonna see it happen you're not gonna see it doing its thing and you know what you can feel like you're not having any impact. you can feel like I'm not having an impact at work like I want to. I'm not having an impact with my friend like I want to or my, in my neighborhood. Do you, do you ever feel like that? I sometimes feel like, we have an impact in this neighborhood at all? I can feel that way sometimes. I feel like Peter, I just go fishing. But could there be, might there be some leavening going on, you just can't see it. The kingdom grows imperceptibly. I know, and Susan will tell you this, I hid God's work in my heart. It was growing. I didn't want anybody to know. on it, you know? I'm all right with God. What do you mean? I was born a Christian. No, I was born a sinner in need of Christ. But finally, that yeast got to growing so much, it had to bubble out. And what must I do to be saved? And that's what God did. And that's how the kingdom often works. And fourth of all, the kingdom advances unstoppably. Once yeast is in that dough, you can't stop that. You can't put a little barrier in there and say, yeast, go no further. That's not, the na- That's not how yeast works, right? Once yeast gets into the bread, you ain't stopping it. Kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God is unstoppable. Let's do a little roll call. A little roll call here. Anybody in this room from the kingdom of Assyria Alexandria, are you from Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria? No, because you'd have to be about 1,500 years old, by the way. That kingdom is long under the dust. <laughs> and you're a spring chicken, got more feathers than I do, right? Anybody here from the Aztec Empire? Anybody? Anybody? Any, can you check the nursery, Nick? Anybody from the Aztec Empire back there? The Mongol Empire. The Ottoman Empire. Anybody? 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 You get the point, I could go on and on and on and on. And by the way, sometimes people say, this is just a side that I scribbled in this morning, but I think it needs to be said, even though going a little bit longer. Thank you for your patience, Stephen. (laughs) I love, if everyone was like Stephen, hey, keep going, you know. (laughs) You can drive home with me, okay, all right. Some people say, you know, the kingdom of God depends on America. That's a bunch of rubbish. Now, I do believe 2 Chronicles seven fourteen that if my people called by my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face and pray, then I will, you know, heal their land and forgive their sin and, and all that. But the reality is, very likely, we are gonna be a finding for archaeologists like those other kingdoms I just mentioned. Right? Because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But not this kingdom, not this kingdom. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom given to the everlasting son. The kingdom got behind the iron curtain, made it there, right? The yeast went through that wall. The kingdom got on the other side of the bamboo curtain, right? From Manchuria to Michigan to Sault Ste. Marie to, I don't know, San Diego. We could keep on going like that. In fact, somebody said, For 2,000 years it's been advancing, and if you right now were to grab a globe, close your eyes, spin it, and jab your finger down, chances are your finger would land on some place where there are Christians, because Jesus said he is saving the people from every nation, from every tribe, from every kindred and every tongue. The gospel is not one man's religion, one people group's religion, it's for any and all who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. In the 18th century, the French atheist philosopher Voltaire predicted, quote, another century and there will not be a Bible on earth. And this is what happened. What irony then that Voltaire's house later became the headquarters for the United Bible Society, printing and distributing many thousands of Bibles, even some printed on the same presses that promulgated his opinions. So, there you have it. Fakes exist, but the kingdom still advances. Now, Nick, if you would come, Stephen, if you would come, this is my way to buy a little bit more time. Okay, just to, uh, uh, four quick takeaways. Good and evil exist side by side. Because you know, one of the one of the things that people say against Christianity, I just read another guy this morning leaving Christianity is if if God exists, then why is there all this evil in this world? If God exists, why does he let this happen? Bro, he's letting us know this is going to be the course of events, right? He's letting us know. Although we struggle with the problem of evil, God has let us know that there's a problem called evil. He's pretty upfront about it, this passage included. And that's why the Bible includes... So up front on the barrel, many expressions and illustrations to remind us of that. He doesn't call, he calls us citizens of another kingdom. He calls us aliens, right? He calls us strangers, doesn't he? He calls us a peculiar people, right? This world is not our home. We're living in a fallen world. In fact, we're told that the weapons of our warfare, so he's, he actually uses the Im- imagery of a battlefield, right? Like we live in a battlefield. And then, of course, there's that unholy trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Listen, good and evil exist side by side. It's the whole reason he sent his son into the world. Second of all, I love this. We are not just on the winning side. We're on the one side. It's already been won. The story of some World War II American POWs in a, in a Nazi concentration camp. And they pieced together with tinfoil and scraps a radio. And they learned that the war had ended, that the Third Reich had been defeated and surrendered and all that. But it took them four, it took four days for the liberators to get to that concentration camp. Nothing changed outwardly for those 96 hours. But inwardly, they were full of joy and relief, knowing the battle had already been won. Third of all, we do not consign people to hell. That's God's business, based on what they do with Jesus, right? Our job is to reach out to people with the gospel so they don't go to hell, in obedience to our King's loving commission. Remember when that Samaritan village rejected Jesus and the disciples said to Jesus, hey, you want us to call down fire on them? Remember that? And what does Jesus say? Jesus rebuked them. No, this is the age of grace. The judgment is yet future, and so we must reach out as we have opportunity. Yes, there comes a time when you don't cast your pearls before swine, that's in the Bible too, but our great burden must be to plead with any and all people who will listen, right? Lost people, even militantly aggressive ones, are under the sway of the evil sower, right? There was a woman who grew up in the church. She became extremely bitter when her father died. Entered a dark season, spiraling out. Does she even know the Lord, all this and that? But on the eve of her mother's death, her mother just pleaded with her over the gospel, and something happened in her heart. And it led to her bona fide conversion. And when her mother passed away, she wasn't bitter. She praised the Lord for the faithfulness of her mother. And finally, what will happen to you at the separation? What will, you, what will happen to you? Have, you? have you trusted Christ? Are you following Christ? And does your life give evidence that you actually are a disciple learner, follower. If that's you. Just remember. We're not on the winning side. We're on the one side. But if that's not you, that actually puts you on the lost side. But see, the lines have not been ultimately drawn. That happens at the final separation. And Jesus is wonderfully in the business of turning weeds into wheat as people acknowledge your sin and come to him. And he would save right here on the spot, anybody here, who trusted in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, thank you.